Oh, good evening. Glad to have you with us um, as we get started in this consideration of prayer again. Um, Think about Paul's prayers. Think about how he actually prayed himself. And so we're going to commit our time to the Lord and then begin to look at that. Father, we come before you. We give you thanks for your great grace to us. Father, we come and ask you to minister to us tonight, meet with us by your spirit for your praise and glory. Father, we thank you that you have called us to live in the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us what that means, and we're looking to you for it. We would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have to use your imagination here for a moment tonight. Um, I want to uh, give you the right to be a companion to the Apostle Paul. You've got to You've got to do the picture in here. We're going to take you to Corinth. I'm going to take you to Corinth after the fireworks are over. You're going to minister with Paul in Corinth. Well, you did that because I don't want you to get persecuted. All right? So everybody else, you know, all the rest of it. He's having trouble everywhere else. But here, it's calmed down now. And you have the privilege of being his associate, being with him all day long, day after day. Now you've done that for a month. If I gave you the assignment as a student, you, won't, you don't have to do anything here, but if I gave you the assignment as a student to now write out, what did you see? What was Paul's prayer life actually like? What would you write down there? Did he pray? What time did he get up? Did he get up early in the morning to pray? Did he have long periods of prayer? Was his prayer primarily personal, or did he pray primarily in groups, I mean, with other people? Um, We could go on and ask a lot of questions there, but the fact of the matter is that if we look at the Word of God, we don't get the answers to very many of those questions. If we talk to, think about the prayer life of the Apostle Paul as it's recorded in the book of Acts, I think there's only four occurrences where he actually prayed. Where, it's t- where we're told that he's praying. Of course, the whole book is about him preaching or about the gospel being spread. And when Paul steps into the, the primary place there, um, he's accomplishing that work so that it's not an emphasis on his behind-the-scenes the behind the ministry. It's, it's right up front. He prayed after he lost his sight when he saw the Lord high and lived up. The Lord speaks to him, calls him. He lost his sight. And when Ananias was sent to him, he says, there's a man praying. Paul, go, go speak to him. That's one time. Next time we hear about him praying, he is, in, he is an elder. He is part of the leadership team of the church at Antioch. And again, at this point, we have to actually assume that it was prayer. It says they that that leadership team was ministering to the Lord and fasting when Paul and Barnabas were set aside. It doesn't actually use the word prayer, but we tend to think that probably is what they were doing. They were praying at that particular time. Next time we, we find him praying, is he, um, he is on a seat in a prison in Philippi. He has just been beaten. That's why we don't want to go anywhere else where our, our study there gets beaten pretty regularly. It's midnight, it's the middle of the night somewhere. And Paul and Barnabas prayed and sang hymns. 
Last time I know of that, again, I may miss something there, but um, late in his ministry, um, he is on his way to Jerusalem where he will be arrested and he will end up in Rome. But on his way, he wanted to speak to the elders at um, Ephesus. He didn't have time to go to Ephesus, so he asked them to come to the coast and meet him on the way past. And he ministered to them. And after he ministered to them, and he, they, they realized this would probably be the last time that they would see each other. They, they cried, but they also knelt down on the beach and prayed. Again, that's, that's helpful. But you got a 25, almost a 30-year ministry described. And you only have four events where you're told that a person prays. It doesn't give us a great picture of his prayer life. Now, I'm not saying he didn't have one. Do not get me wrong. I'm not trying to, to say that. I'm simply saying that we don't have a lot to go on in the book of Acts. But Paul does pray, and we, we, want, to, we want to think about what he has to teach us to pray. I, I'm kind of thinking in this, this series... It's more or less like the way you inspire kids with sports. You know, you can, you can teach them how to play, but you want to really get them going in sports? Let them watch the great guys do it. Let them watch the person who can really do it well. I remember every time we would watch a game when I was growing up, as soon as it's over, you run outside and you try to play football. All right, you're going to try to do that. You're going to try to... You're going to, try to Make that basketball shot that that guy did. Now, you can't reach any higher than this, but you're going to still try to dunk it. You know, you're going to try to get, you know, somehow get, get a ladder or something. Because in seeing how they did it, you try to imitate it. And I, I, that's really what I want to try to do in this particular series, is to get and think about what Paul did, what he, how he prays, so that we can be inspired to go along with him. Now, what will we find out is we think. The first thing we need to note is Paul had a very strong emphasis on prayer. And again, let me just say that throughout this course, throughout this series, I want to say this is, in certain senses, superficial. We are just, we're looking highlight films, all right? We are not going to all the details. We can't. We don't have enough time. That's the point we want to make. We don't have enough time to go to all that. But first of all, we want to, we were just, I'm selecting out a few verses to help you get something of a feel for Paul's emphasis on prayer. The name of the course is devoted to prayer, okay? Devoted to prayer. That comes from, that's a, that is the exact way it is stated in the New American Standard in Paul's epistle to the Romans. In chapter 12, he is describing in, in shotgun fashion what a Christian life ought to look like. And he starts out with let the love of the brethren be without hypocrisy. And then he goes down through a series of things. And one of the things he says characterizes a man who really knows God is that he's devoted to prayer. Do that. Be devoted to prayer. He uses that same word in the first verse that is, is mentioned there. It's in Colossians chapter 4, uh, verse 2. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. I mean, just know what's going on in the book of Colossians. The people would come into Colossae and they had said, Jesus, it's a good start for your Christian life, but you need to go to other things later on to really get to the heights, to get to all that God has for you. Paul says, no, you're going to, you started in Christ, you're going to finish in Christ. And then he has to stop and, and describe to us what are the heights. What does it mean if a person has reached what they can reach on this earth in Jesus Christ? 
If they have come to a full experience of the life, what is it like? And one of the things that he says here is that those people, as he's describing a mature Christian living out the full life, he says, devote yourself to prayer. Let me just, I'm just making very quick comments on that. The first thing that we note about what Paul thinks about prayer is the word devote. That could be translated. In fact, this is New American Standard. Um, uh, it's translated a lot of different ways. It could be persevere in prayer. That could be one of them. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And all you need to note about it is this, that the word implies that you are committing yourself to do something which you realize you're going to have to overcome things to do it. All right? It's like those, those New Year's resolutions where you know that you need to do this, but you know that you won't unless you make up your mind to it and set yourself to it. That's the kind of the thought in the word. There's going to be something that stops you. He's, he's indicating here that nobody drifts into a life of prayer. You don't drift that direction. You, you drift away from it. And so you're going to have to commit yourself to it, devote yourself to prayer. That's what he's talking about there. And then he says this, keeping alert in it. That's another interesting thought. Keep alert in your prayer. What does that mean? What's he talking about there? Well, there it's, it's picking almost a, a warfare type of thought, but it's, it's the idea of stay awake, but it's more than just stay awake. This, the problem isn't the, the Peter and James and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's not what he's concerned about. They, they were so tired that night. They had been through an exhausting day. I don't know. You know it, it's kind of surprising to me that the Lord was surprised they fell asleep because they had been through some exhausting, emotionally exhausting circumstances. But that's not what Paul's thinking about here. He's not talking about just staying awake, although that can be its own challenge in a time of prayer. What he's talking about here is that as you're praying, you are alert to what's going on. We're going to see that in the next, in the next verse. You're alert to what's going on. You are you're praying because there's things happening that you have to pay attention to, and they have to be addressed, and you're, you're determined to do that. Uh, he says to do that with an attitude of thanksgiving. I think that's very important. I don't have time for that right at the moment, but uh, that attitude of thanksgiving is very important because prayer can, if you don't include thanksgiving in it, can lead you into quite a bit of depression because it tends to concentrate on what's wrong and what needs to be fixed. I mean, uh, have you, I, you've been to church, right? Any prayer requests? They're not the most inspiring time of your life is when you get the prayer request. You get a list of all the things that are happening that need, need patched up. All right? And Paul says you're to keep alert to all that, but you're also to have an attitude of thanksgiving because God is at work. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Second verse. I told you this could be fast. All right? But anyway... It's the way Paul thinks about it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Now, at this particular point, he's at the end of the book of Ephesians, and he has just completed his discussion of the need to stand against the powers of darkness. All right? Be strong in the Lord. That's where this section begins. Be strong in the Lord, the power of his might. Why do we need to be strong in the Lord? Because as those who belong to God, we are up against principalities and powers. We are in a warfare, but it's not a warfare with people. It's not a warfare to try to conquer individuals. It is a warfare against powers of darkness that you can't see. 
And as he goes through there, he says, now, as a church, put on the armor, let's get into the fight. Right? It's a call not just for me to get in the fight or for you to get in the fight, for us to suit up and, and do our part. All right. As he completes that, after he talks about the word of God, he finishes with this. And basically he's saying, throw everything you've got at prayer. Listen, to this is again kind of an awkward statement because it's the New American Standard. And I, I like the New American Standard, but it's sometimes a little awkward because it sticks so close to what the Greek says. All right, so this is the, this is the wording, the way it comes out in the Greek. Um, the ESV is much easier to understand. Uh, just, it just changes the words around a little bit. But listen to what he has to say here. With all prayer and petition, right? That's with every kind. That's in every kind of prayer and petition. Anything you can throw at it, all right? Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on, alert, be on the alert. That's, again, back to that alertness. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints. I want you to note the four all parts there. All prayer, all times, all uh, perseverance, and all the saints. That's because we're in a fight. This is, I think, because the books of Colossians and Ephesians are so closely connected they're actually on about the same outline. I think that's what he had in mind when he was writing in Colossians, although it's a little hard to say that. We have to be alert. Why do we have to be alert? Why do I have to be alert as I'm praying? Because you're under fire. You are being attacked. We're in a fight together. That's what his thought is here. We are in a conflict together. And I have a responsibility to you, and you have a responsibility to me. To, to get through this battle together, we have to fight together. And so he says, pray, use every kind of prayer you can, and keep it up at all times, and persevere in it, and keep watching for all the saints. Watch out for what's going on. It's alertness. That's Paul's. Word. Now, again, I want you to note that in both those cases, Paul's not talking about his own prayer life. He's talking about our prayer life. He's talking about, he's, he's, the, he's, the, you know, he's the one who can really do it well. Okay, we're acknowledging that. The great saint, probably the best saint, the greatest saint, closest one ever was. Okay, what does that mean to us? Well, this is, this is his instructions to regular people in the church, us. The next one is particularly important for that, and that's where we want to go primarily because it says, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All right, now, the Thessalonian church was not very old when he wrote this. He was only in Thessalonica for a short period of time. He got run out. Uh, they were only able, I think it was about four weeks of, of getting the church started, but the church took off. It, took, it really took off. And in a very short period of time, the the faith of the church at Thessalonica became famous in the whole region, that those guys over there really believed God. And so it had God was doing a great work. Paul's writing to them. But again, even though there is a powerful work taking place, note that it's not an old work. This is only, at most, a year and a half, two years old. Before they just came out of darkness. And here's what he has to say. This is, he's getting down to some final instructions in that book. And this is what he says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
about that? <laughs> That's a fast discussion of what to do. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. All right. Now, he says three different things you're to do. All right. And he says this is the will of God for you. Now, let me just, so I don't forget this later on, because we're going to go fast past this. Paul is not saying this is the totality of the will of God. He's not saying that if you do this, you've done God's purpose for your life. He's just releasing us to do this. This is God's purpose because I don't know if you've ever been in that place where things are not what they ought to be and you could easily say to yourself, this is not a time to be rejoicing. You could even get a sense of guilt that you are rejoicing because of the seriousness of what's happening. But Paul releases us. He says that joy is to be part of the Christian life at every juncture. So pray without ceasing. Don't stop. Don't stop for anything. Because of what it means to be a Christian, your life is secure in every way. No matter what happens, it's okay. It's okay. Rejoice always. He's going to finish by saying, give thanks in everything. All right? Give thanks in everything. Now, he's not saying give thanks for everything because there's some things that happen that are evil. But in the middle of everything, Paul says to give thanks. We should note that the early church, despite all of the persecution that it underwent, was known as a joyous group of people. One of the attractive features of the early church as slaves and others spread this gospel throughout the Roman Empire, the Christian people are joyous people. It's part of our heritage. Now, I'm only mentioned that putting it all together here for this reason. Right in the middle of it, he says, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. That We can kind of get that. Just be, be in rejoicing state all the time. Be giving thanks for whatever happens. But when we get to that pray without ceasing... Our hearts don't kind of go the same direction. We don't, we, we, we don't intend to apply it in the same way. There's two different ways that it can be applied, which would be accurate if the two ends weren't on it. Praying without ceasing could mean that you're to have a prayer life, which is every day and, and on. And a, just don't break your prayer life up. Don't, don't, don't have a, a period of six weeks where you don't pray. Right? Pray without ceasing could be understood that way. But in the context of rejoicing in the Lord, all, or rejoicing always, and in everything giving thanks, that doesn't fit. The pressure of the passage is towards this being a continuous inward experience. Just like the joy is to be a continuous inward experience, and the thanksgiving is to be an inward. Does that make sense? Now, that's, that's difficult. What did he mean by praying without ceasing? All right. Um, <clears throat> if that's going to work out, how does it work out? Well, that's what we're going to be trying to figure out. We're going to be trying to look this way. What does it really mean that we are to pray without ceasing? Now, in order to 
So you think about what prayer meant to Paul. This is kind of an aside. Point number two is not really point number two. It's just an aside. We'd have to throw this in. And I'm going to have to throw it in. You're going to have to take it by faith, and we're going to see it as we go. All right? So I do not have... There's no particular verse will tell you all this. There's no place you can turn and say, this is what Paul thought. I'm going to uh, rely heavenly, uh, heavily, not heavenly, but heavily on Leon Morris, who wrote the commentary on Second um, or on Thessalonians. And as he's speaking about this, he says the only way this can be understood is to understand that Paul had certain attitudes. So I'm going to quote him because he, he said it. All right. Again, I'm not quoting directly. I'm just paraphrase of it. He says there are three things that you have to have here in order to. This has to be a spirit of dependence. This has to be a spirit which understands the reality of God and it's a, a submission to the will of God. Now, again, I'm putting that out quickly. On the, I've kind of rewritten that to get some feel for how Paul lives. How did he think with regards to his life? First thing I want you to note is this, that Paul was aware that God was with him. He was aware that God was with him. Whether you think about the Spirit of God being filling him or the Jesus Christ being his life, he's aware of God being with him. I want to use that word aware because um, I'm a little afraid of the word um, conscious. Was he conscious of the presence of the Lord? Because the word conscious can, conscience can mean so many different things. If you're thinking of conscious of the, of, of the Lord in a faith manner that I am believing that what he said is true, which again, I'll be real arrogant here and say, that's what I'm counting on tonight. I'm counting on the fact that as we gather together, the Lord is present. That he is right here. How, why do I count on that? Because he said so. Because he said he would be here. The Spirit of God was sent to meet me so that I can do a particular work. I'm counting on that. Do I sense his presence? Do I feel that presence? I'm not going to say I do in the sense that I feel here, but I know it's true. Does that make sense? I don't know, maybe for me, it's all intellectual that you, you know it's true. That does not mean that God cannot and has not come and made himself a reality to me. I'm going to make that clear. I believe that he said he would come and manifest himself. And I think he has. And I think he will. But do I think that's a continuous experience? Well, it depends on how you're looking at it. For everybody that isn't seated on the back row, there's someone behind you. They're the same person probably that was behind you when you sat down. Are you conscious of their presence? Well, if they're noisy, you could be. If they breathe heavy, they fell asleep and are snoring, you could maybe, you know, hear them. Um, if, you know, if they shuffle around. But if they don't, you're not aware, you don't sense their presence, you just know they're there. Or at least you assume they're there. I have some money in the bank, not much. Damn it, I've got some money in the bank. I count on the fact that that's there at certain points. Am I, do I feel that it's there? No, 
but I know that it's there, and I act on it. Now, I, this is what I'm... If you count on the presence of God on a regular basis, you will be aware of his presence because he will be meeting you in such a way that you'll be aware of it. But the awareness, the sense of the awareness of the Lord is not the key thing. Paul counted on the Lord being there. And I think if you read through the book of Acts and read through what Paul has to say, there were ups and downs in that. There were times when God was much closer to him, much more revealing himself than at other times. It just goes up and down. But it doesn't change the reality. And in Paul's prayer life, that reality is very important. Does that make sense? Anyway, that's the first point. The second thing that Paul recognizes is that history isn't random. It has a purpose. Before this whole world started, God had a plan, and that plan is coming to pass tonight. Students left three weeks ago. They're back, okay? We're three weeks closer to the culmination of that great program. We're always moving. We're always closer. Now is our salvation closer than the day when we first believed. It's always getting closer because it started and it has an end. Paul recognized that. In just a few days, we're going to be starting into the book of Ephesians in, in our first period class. It breaks out with a, a very a tremendous statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing because he had a plan. He says he's made known to us the administration, the plan that he has, and he's carrying it out. And Paul knew that. And that plan will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled whether we do the right thing tonight or don't do the right thing tonight. God is at work. Paul late in his ministry was thrown in prison. And he was, <laughs> all kinds of things seemed to be going wrong at the time. He t- talks to Timothy. He sends his letter to Timothy. He's calling him to be a courageous soldier of Jesus Christ. He says, at one point, you could paraphrase it this way, Paul Timothy, they have thrown me in prison, but they can't throw the word of God in prison. It will accomplish its purpose. The program is bigger than me, Timothy. It's bigger than you. God has a plan which he will fulfill. The day will come when Jesus Christ will be exalted. Anyway, this is part of Paul's Paul's viewpoint. There is a plan taking place. But there's a second part to that. And that is this, that Paul is part of that plan. That there is a big plan, and then there is the, you know, there's the part that Paul's playing. There was a, there's the big movement. Won't go into the movement. Uses this phrase, you know, think globally. Act locally, right? Think globally. Act locally. I'm not promoting the system. I'm just saying that pretty much is the way Paul. Paul knows that there is a there's a great program. The church is being built on this earth today. Men and women are coming to Jesus Christ. People who know Jesus Christ are growing in Him. Everything is being prepared for a great day. But we don't want to sit back and just say a great thing is happening. That great thing has happening in this auditorium tonight. 
if I didn't believe that, what would be the point of getting up here to give a show, to do a performance? The reason we do this is because I believe that as the word of God is spoken and the truth of God is revealed, that the living God does works in individuals which will last for all eternity. Now, again, read 2 Timothy, you find out that sometimes it looks like nothing's happened, but it is happening. Now, Paul understood that. Paul understood that he was vitally involved. Now, of course, he's the apostle. But you are vitally involved in that. I am vitally involved in that. The will of God is not only coming to pass. I try to get this across to students. The will of God is not only coming to pass tonight because I get up here and speak the word of God. You have a chance tonight to bring to pass the purposes of God in your seat as you pray. When this meeting is over, you will do something with your time. You could talk to somebody who is in great need, and the will of God could come to pass. You see, the kingdom of God is, is coming, but it's, it's not coming sign of out in, the, in the, some ethereal place. It's coming through men and women who do the purpose of God. It's kind of like a, a reaction when we were working with them in chemistry. You can think about all this thing is happening in the reaction. But for a reaction to take place, ultimately, this has to happen. This guy and this guy have to collide. It's one, it's one molecule and another molecule colliding. It has to happen. Now, you can have massive reactions and all kinds of take place, but it ultimately can be boiled down to one and one and one and one. Every person in this room that knows Jesus Christ came to know him through another person. You came to know him through another person. You didn't come to know him through a hundred people. You came to know him because of an interaction with a person. We are part of the coming of the kingdom of God on this earth. All of us. All of us. Right? And Paul understood that. He understands that God's working in you. And he's working through you. That working in you is something we, again, we, we have to be very confident on that one also. In Paul's epistle to the Romans, he tells us that we were under the reign of death and we have now been placed under the reign of grace. That's a tremendous picture. Because the reign of death is so absolute. Is there anybody here that's not dying? No. When sin came into the human race, it touched the entirety of the human race, and every individual is relentlessly moving towards death. There's nothing you can do to avoid the ultimate end. You can preserve it for a little bit. You can back it off maybe by exercise or the right food or all the rest of it. But ultimately, death is at work in you, and it's at work in me, and we will pass from this earth unless the Lord comes and gets us before that happens. It will happen. 
He says, that's the way it used to be. Now, you've been delivered from that as being the ruling thing. Now, here's where God has put you under the reign of grace, which means what? That just as certainly as death is working in me, and I can't avoid that, the grace of God is also working in me, and it will come to its full potential. Because faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. This is Paul's, Paul's viewpoint. It's working in him. But here comes the mystery in the whole thing. Even though he has a very strong sense of the certainty of God's purpose being fulfilled, he also believes this. It will be fulfilled in the purpose of God as he prays. That his prayers have an impact on the ultimate outcome. That part does not make sense. I'm just going to say that so that when you come, you can say, that doesn't make sense. I know. I know that. But Paul is convinced that it does make it. He's just going to act that way. If I don't believe the first part, I'll take the responsibility for this all myself, and you'll be crushed. You'll be crushed. There is that much sin on this earth. There is that much pain on this earth. There is that much human beings. I mean, again, get to Paul's last letter. This guy's messed up, and this guy's messed up, and nobody showed up. It looks like everything's falling apart, right? But it's not falling apart. It's not falling apart. But if Paul at that point grabbed this thing and said, it all rests on who I am and what I've done, then he's going to be very discouraged, man, but he's not because God's purpose is going to be fulfilled. But on the other hand, he's not going to fall into this trap and say, therefore, I can just get a hammock, sit, put my feet up and see how God works it all out. Paul still had to preach the gospel. That was part of his ministry. He has to preach because it's not going to come to pass unless he preaches. But the other side of it is this, that unless he prays, the fullness of it won't come to pass, that his prayers would affect the ultimate outcome. Otherwise, why would you do them? Why would you make these prayers? Why would I have to be watchful on your behalf if it didn't matter? Just so I could do an exercise? It doesn't make any sense. So the, the two facts, again, they don't seem to match together, but they're the way the New Testament presents it, and that's where we, we're going to have to go. Now, <clears throat> Paul says, pray without ceasing. And so a problem comes up, then what does he mean by that? This is always an interesting feature. Very early in my um, time of teaching, it was impressed on me greatly that people who listen to what I say, will interpret that the way I interpret it. They will interpret it the way I live it out. If I'm going to talk to somebody about taking up a cross, I can talk all day about taking up a cross, but they finally will determine what it means to take up a cross by saying, what do you do? How do you live? That's where the danger of, of talking and not doing is, is really great. It's pressure that Teachers have to, have to live under because what? Don't be many teachers. There's greater, greater judgment. I mean, you got to perform. I mean, because that's how you're going to understand it. You're going to understand it. Right? I knew that Mr. Carroll really counted on the presence of the Lord. You know one of the reasons I knew how to do that? 
because I was very close here, and I, I met him, and, and I'm working along with him. You know how you go to Mr. Gill, you say, hey, Mr. Gill, what do you think we ought to do about this situation? We got this student over here. What are we going to do about it? Let's pray about it. That was the response every single time. And it just almost never talked to you about the circumstance until, unless you were talking to him. But when he got the, when he got the floor, well, let's stop and pray. You see, through that exercise, I learned that what he thinks is that you ought to take everything to the Lord in prayer, right? Because that's the way he said this. But this is how he worked it out. He's not going to talk about it first. He's going to pray about it first. And then we talk and, and we, we come to conclusions. What we're going to do here is let Paul teach us by how he actually prayed. We don't have a record in the book of Acts, but we have his epistles. And as we look at what he does in those epistles, we will find out how he viewed prayer. We're going to find that out. We're on the back page. If I can unroll my scroll here. Okay, yeah, there it is. There's the information. <clears throat> what are you going to find? What are you going to find as we look at Paul's epistles? Well, here's the first thing you're going to find. He teaches on prayer. We've started on that tonight. We thought, and primarily this one, he, he says you ought to pray without ceasing. So that's, we can look at his testimony um, concerning prayers, teaching on prayers, testimony of his own prayer life. He does tell us about his prayer life. Then we have in the second one, this is important, we have records of his prayer requests. He tells us exactly how he prayed at certain points. He doesn't tell us how he prayed about everything, but he does tell us uh, how he prayed for the church in Philippi. He tells us how we prayed for the church in Glossy and the church at Ephesus. So we have the records of his prayers. And here's a big one. <clears throat> if you want to know whether Paul took it seriously to in everything give thanks, I would just challenge you to get a highlighter and an old Bible and highlight every time Paul gives thanks in his epistles. It is staggering. It's staggering. When I heard that things were going well there, I give thanks to God. I gave thanks to God. I gave thanks to God. You do learn from Paul that if you're not giving thanks, you're not doing anything right because he attaches it to everything, prayer life, every other part of life. All right? But he does it. Now, those thanksgivings are expressions of prayer, right? Because he's speaking to God about what he is thankful for. So every time you're reading that, you're reading about his prayer life. And there's a benediction. Now, a benediction, as I explain this, <clears throat> at times Paul doesn't exactly pray directly. He just asks that something might be so. Grace to you. All right? Grace to you. But you have to understand that as a prayer because nobody can, I can't sit here and say grace to you and have anything happened. I can't dispense grace. It makes sense. Only God can dispense grace. So when he says grace to you and peace from God our Father, he is, he's actually counting on the one who is present 
to respond to what he is saying and bring you into that experience. How about that? There's a, a whole series of these that are more elaborate. And just think about this in a, in a troubled world, what it would mean. And Paul speaks and says, Now may the God of hope, there's a big thing, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What a prayer. Is there anybody here that doesn't need that prayer to be answered on their behalf? The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What an experience. Right? But that's a prayer. It's a prayer. It's a benediction. He is pronouncing blessing. But if that blessing that he pronounces is to become a reality, he's involved. God has to do it. I can't bestow joy. I can't bestow peace. And we have numerous places where he starts it off with may the Lord. But it's still prayer. It's still prayer. And then finally, there are those times when Paul just can't contain himself. And his teaching bursts out into praise. We've already mentioned one of those. He's going to teach the Ephesian church of just how much Jesus Christ has done for them in that great work of redemption, what it means that he has completely delivered them and brought them over here. But instead of just outlining and setting it down, he can't help himself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done this. An outburst of praise. He gets to the end of his section on the God's work with the nation of Israel in the book of Romans, and he bursts out in praise. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom, knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. Now, the reason I'm bring all that up is that this, these, are, these epistles weren't written in order for him to have a hymn book or to sing praise. They were written to instruct people. They were written so that people who were struggling in their Christian walk, might be stabilized by the truth of the word of God. But as he writes them, he intersperses all through it statements of thanksgiving, benedictions, prayers, calls. Why does he do that? Because even when he's writing, Paul's a man who is praying without ceasing. Again, as I think it's Bishop Lightfoot that said this, that he said that Paul had an inward attitude so in touch with God that it had to spill out everywhere he went. That the acts of prayer were just the spilling out of an inward attitude. Now, all that is theoretical. It's all theoretical. I want to say theoretical. My great concern for you is that, uh, and it's my own concern, with regards to prayer. So many of us have a view of this would be a great prayer life, and we're aiming at it. And we don't even know if it's a biblical view. We just know that it's, it's, it's what everybody seems to think is a good idea. 
And very often that is, that's an idea that's way up here and I can't achieve it. And then all I do, prayer, prayer just makes people guilty. The subject of prayer for I think the majority of people, it's kind of like, you know, how much do you weigh? Mm. Why did you have to bring that up? You know, it's, it's not the subject that you want to bring up if you, you know, want to make people feel better about themselves. You know, did you do this? There's just those things. Prayer seems to be one of those. And my great concern for you and for myself is that we get a realistic view of what prayer was. Now, prayer is a very, very powerful thing, but we have to be realistic about it. It has to work out in real life for real people. And so all I want to do for the next nine weeks is look at some of the, just some of, we do not have time to look at everything. It's an incomplete, at the, begin, at the very bottom there, it says this, it's an incomplete study. It's incomplete because there's no way we can cover it all in nine weeks. I decided that I was looking at how am I going to organize this, and rather than try to organize it topically, I decided to go at it chronologically. The earliest prayers that he gives to the later prayers that he gives. It says roughly because, quite honestly, we don't have the exact order. You want to write a PhD thesis, you can write it on whether or not Philippians comes before or after Colossians and Ephesians. I really, we don't know. I don't know. So they're about the same time. We'll take it in a particular. So it's only rough, but it does start with the earliest things he had to say, how he prayed for these people at the very earliest part, and then how is his prayers change in a sense as he goes on into the later epistles, and, and what kind of things does he have to say later on? We're not trying to take them, again, they're selective because I'm making the selections. I'm passing by about three things for every one I pick out. And I'm making that selection just because it's what I think might be most helpful. So I'm admitting that. And if you want to expand the study, you're free to delve into the books of, of the epistles that Paul wrote and listen to him not only teach, but focus on his prayers. Focus on the way in which he interacts with his father as he deals with the people to whom he's speaking. Pray without ceasing. What does it mean? What does it mean? What kind of an inward attitude can bring us to that? That's what we want to look at. That's what we need to think about. And so we will come back next week and start into the same book, Thessalonians, very first one that we, we want to consider and think about how Paul prayed for them. Now let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you and give you thanks for the life you've called us to. We thank you for your presence here tonight. We thank you for every person who belongs to you in this room. We thank you have a plan for us. You have a place for us to minister. Teach us to pray, Lord. We come and ask you to do that. Pray in a way which affects those who you brought us in contact with for the glory of God. We look to you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.